Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. Given the vast amounts of fear and uncertainty that are surrounding the current job market, I thought that I'd give you a dose of inspiration, of motivation, and dare I say, even a little gratitude to remind us all of the resilience and the adaptability of the human race. On the heels of my recent conversation with Brad Stolberg, who is the author of the book Master of Change, which provides amazing and practical ways to adapt and develop resiliency in the face of change, as well as my recent conversation with disability advocate Taylor Lewis, I thought that I released this upcoming series to give you all a new appreciation for the growth that arises from adversity. For the next five weeks, I'm going to be releasing some of my favorite interviews with everyday people who have overcome insurmountable obstacles to achieve extraordinary things. In this top five series, you're going to hear from a wide range of guests who have faced extreme adversity and they have made it through to the other side to tell the tale. If you enjoy this top five playlist, I invite you after you listen today to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast to download your very own customized podcast playlist. And it's going to be based on your interests and your goals, and it's curated from our library of over 250 conversations. Again, you can get your free playlist at optimizeyourself.me slash podcast. All right, without further ado, here's the third part of this five-interview series with actor, writer, and producer Eric Stolhansky, who's best known for his role as Rabbit in the Super Trooper series. His lesser-known role, of course, is playing himself in Tony Horton's P90X plyometrics workout. And of course, he's the one doing it with the wooden leg. Eric has a ton to teach us about how we can all turn our disabilities into superpowers. You can find the original show notes for this interview at optimizeyourself.me slash episode 190. I'm here today with Eric Stolhansky, who is an actor, a writer, a producer, 
but he's probably best known as playing Rabbit in Super Trooper 1 and 2. Or if you are one of my many fitness friends that might be listening, you might recognize him as the guy from the original P90X who had the prosthesis in the plyometrics video. So yes, today we are talking to the kind of guy that has a wooden leg and is jumping up and down in the hardest workout known to humankind. Eric, it's such a pleasure to finally get you on the microphone today. Thank you for being here. Hi, Zach. I was a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. <laughs> and you kicked ass. Um, and we'll, we're, we're going to talk uh, more about how that evolved and kind of the, the mindset and philosophy behind uh, why our, our mutual friend and mentor, Tony Horton, might have put you in that position for sure. Because uh, there's, there's a lot of lessons to be learned about that. Um, but essentially today, you and I are just going to have a conversation about life and failures and obstacles and disabilities and all the things that are stopping us from our goals. Because boy, did you have a really good excuse to just kind of throw up your hands early in life and be like, well, I don't know, here's the hand I was dealt, guess I'm not going to amount to much. So let's get started with a, a little bit of your origin story so we can contextualize this beyond the guy from Super Trooper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's funny, some people still to this day, they'll be like, oh my God, I had no idea you had a wooden leg. Um, I always kind of wanted it that way and Tony kind of cha changed it, we can get into that, but uh I always wanted to act in comedy films and movies without ever kind of coming out about having a wooden leg. And then eventually uh, Tony changed that. But the reason, the reason I have a wooden leg is that I was born without a fibula in my leg. And so for those of you who are not biology majors, uh, below the knee, we have two bones. The front is the tibia, the shin bone, and the back is the fibula, and that's the growing bone. And as some weird genetic fluke, I was born without a fibula, which is semi-common. I mean, it's not like a unicorn unusual, but it's not. Probably a lot of people don't know people that happen to, but it's not the most unusual thing in the world. But I was born without a fibula. So um, I always think this is the most interesting thing if I had to put myself in someone's shoes is that my mom, at age 26, which is pretty young, had to make a decision when I was born without a fibula to either see what would happen born without a growing bone or amputate my foot and have your young kid have his foot cut off and then grow up on, you know, I, I couldn't walk for about two years. So my mom had to drive, drag me around in a red flyer wagon for two years. I just think that would be such a hard choice to have to make at 26 when you're not really fully formed. That's a hard choice to make at any age, but at 26, yeah, um, that just 26. seems inconceivable. But you know, as we're going to talk about, you put yourself in impossible situations. You can either fold and say, I give up, or I'm just, I'm going to figure it out. And uh, I would assume that from my understanding, she decided to go with the amputation, yes? <laughs> yes, she did. Yes, she Making did. Making a safe assumption, Which, am I? Uh, it's safe, yes. Good, good call. You're a man of the Mensa crowd. But it's funny, I, I was in elementary school with a kid who whose mother must have made the other choice because he walked around with a shoe that had a gigantic heel. I don't know if you've seen that in kids in elementary school or beyond that. And I think he had a much more challenging time than I did. I mean, I'd run around the playground and I had my share of like uh, interesting stories because kids used to tear off my leg and then throw it over my head and play pickle in the middle with my leg as I'm trying to grab it on the playground. So you talk about a lot of kids getting bullied growing up. I certainly had my share of that. So <laughs> I don't know if they ever stole his shoe and threw it over his head, but they definitely used to do that with my leg. But I don't know, it builds, it builds character, I guess. I would never want my 
you know, anyone that I knew bullied like that on the playground, but um, it is what it is. Well, you, I think you just took, you took playground bullying to a whole new level. Cause I would guess that most of the, (laughs) most of the people listening today are similar to myself and that grew up very creative, somewhat introverted, not everybody, but I would say the lion's share. We all have our story about being bullied. Every story I ever tell, I'm never going to be able to tell with as much vigor again. Cause I'm thinking, (laughs) yeah, but they didn't tear off my leg and play pickle with it. So you've ruined all of my bullying (laughs) stories. That was a good one. Yeah, I remember that pretty clearly. It's pretty pretty regular on the playground. So from there, you're born with uh, without a fibula, and your mom makes this really challenging decision at a very young age. And I think, as you would agree, and she would now, it actually was it was the harder decision, but it was the simpler one. That it's like, all right, we figure out what to do if you don't have the bottom half of your leg. Versus, well, we're going to kind of adapt, and maybe we need the shoes or the braces or whatever. It's like, yeah, let's just let's just get rid of it and let's figure out how to deal with this. And I think it actually probably made a lot of things simpler for you. Um, but I know that growing up uh, from very early in life through middle school, high school, college, and whatnot, one of the choices that you made, which I think is going to be very interesting to a lot of people, was not, well, because of the leg, I can't really do anything physical, so I guess I'm going to sit around where I don't need a leg. You indeed became very, very athletic, did you not? I did. I was a very active kid, um, and I th- think that was a something my mom always kind of grappled with as, you know, this kid who... I, I got a, I, I started, I started having a prosthesis when I was, um, I guess I had my foot amputated when I was 18 months old. So I probably had my first prosthesis when I was about four. And as you know, four-year-olds are pretty active. So I was cruising around running. Uh, I did a lot of hopping, but I grew up in Minnesota and I always wanted to go ice skating. I have these pictures of my mom taking me ice skating when I was like really small. And my dad taking me skiing when I was really small. And so my parents obviously thought it was important that I get out and do what all the other kids in the neighborhood did, a lot of kids in the neighborhood. So instead of like having me just stay in and play break the ice or sorry or connect four all day long, you know, they they definitely got me out trying. I'm sure they were trying to get me to burn out some energy because they probably wanted me to go to sleep. But uh, I don't know, I guess I really took to it. And I had a lot of kids in the neighborhood. And I just wanted to be like everybody else. So even though it was hard, and, you know, I I often tell a story, if I travel around and give my uh, speech is that I love playing baseball. And eventually, I my mom signed me up for Lily. I was a little bit later, I was like nine years old, when I first started playing Lily, but I really took to it and loved baseball. And uh, back in those days, you know, this was the dark ages of prosthetic technology. Now, you know, things are so much more advanced, especially currently with all the veterans coming back and the medical technology advancing. But back in, I was growing up in the seventies and all I would do is throw a gym sock over the end of my leg and then I'd put it in my wooden leg. And so when I ran, what happened was it, it, you know, rubs like this. And so it's called pistoning and my skin would just tear. I mean, technology back in the seventies was pretty basic. So, uh, I don't know. I, I never wanted to really stop playing baseball. I do the kind of things. And so my skin was tearing off my leg. I would just throw some ointment on it, a bunch of band-aids, take about 20 Tylenol and, uh, just get out and do what all the other kids did. And, um, I don't know. I just always wanted to be active and I never wanted something to stop me even having a wooden leg from being active and not, um, achieving what all the other kids in the neighborhood were doing and just going out and, I guess, accomplishing things. I don't know if that was, you know, the goal when I was eight or nine or 10 years old, but I guess that, you know, there were these goals that you don't talk about like we do as adults, but the goal was to play baseball and to be like other kids. And 
I remember I signed up for a football in fifth grade and my mom and dad freaked out, right? Because they were like, ah, you only have one good leg. You know, if that leg gets hurt, well, then what? You can't even walk, right? So we sort of compromised on football, even though I played for a year and loved it. And during uh, the playground, I still would be that active and tackling and stuff like that. But uh, baseball, basketball, uh, skiing in the wintertime, skating in the wintertime just being active like every other kid. So basically it, it's been a pattern your entire life of let's find the most difficult version of a sport that requires the most lower body athletics. And I'm going to do it, yeah. which now yes. the whole, you know, plyometrics P90X will dir totally makes sense. Um, but it's not a matter of, you know, I'm, I'm choosing the, the sports that are still sports and still active, but I really need to adjust and compensate for the fact that unfortunately my leg doesn't work. And you're just like, F it, let's pick the hardest stuff. Yeah. It should have been a chess player. Yeah. Right. Chess. Very active, Chess very checkers. engaged. Mm. Um, yeah. that, that would have been the way to go. But what I'm curious about, and uh, you alluded to this a little bit, when you're eight, you don't know any better. You just want to get out there and you want to run around. However, I think that even at that age, there are conversations that happen in the house. There are unwritten rules and mindsets that are written in our brains, voices that we get in our head that compel us to become these kinds of people that make the, the harder decision versus the easier decision. So it sounds like a lot of this came from a very early age when your mom was having to make hard decisions. So what are some of the, whether it's conversations, the mindsets, the, the things that have you, you have learned from a very young age that you feel that even to this day are still the scripts or the voices in your head, that every time there's a challenge, you're like, I'm going to choose the harder version instead of the easier one. Yeah. Well, I can think of one specific uh, um, incident when I was young. I... Um I would always, we had a park at the end of our street and I love to go ice skating, but everyone else in my neighborhood and growing up in Minnesota where there's a lot of snow, we wanted to go skiing. And so I remember talking to my mom and dad one day saying, Hey, I want to go skiing. And they were like, Oh man, wow. Okay. Um, and so they took me down to a, a local ski place and hill Minnesota, they're kind of hills more than mountains, but they fitted me with outriggers. Are you familiar with that? Like you, yeah, the where arms, they had the things have, that are, they're like training wheels kind of, you know, it's like, it's like a crutch with a ski on it, right? So right. you're skiing, but you have your arms out and they have skis on the front of the crutches. And you're bracing yourself on that and going down the hill. And so I was this little kid doing this. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, I don't know, I think I can just do it with skis. And it was the hard choice. And my mom was like, well, whatever you think you can do, I'll support. You know, you'll try it. And she would say to me, you're going to fall down right? And I'm starting to get kind of choked up a little bit, but um, she would be like, you're going to fall down and that's okay. You know, it's soft. The snow is soft and like, it's going to be hard, but if you want to try it without just skis, you can. And uh, I think it's really important lesson we can take away as human beings. So what we, the effect we can have on other human beings, you know, I'm talking about myself right now, but like the impact that my mom had on me of supporting other people and saying, I have your back, um, I'm going to be there for you. It's amazing how much you can lift up other people when you actually support other, other, other people. And, uh, she was saying, let's try it. Let's do this. You know, you want to try this? Cool. Okay. You know, first time I'm, blah, you know, yard sale, skis are all over the place, hat, gloves, whatever. Try it again. Why? You know, fall down, fall down. But eventually, you know, I made it from the top of the hill to the bottom of the hill with a wooden leg. And I thought it was the most exhilarating, coolest thing in the world, you know, that I didn't have to wear outriggers, which is nothing wrong with people do. I know I love helping uh, people do disability ski clinics, but I just want to try it. 
you know, and if I couldn't do it, I would have gone about outriggers, but like I made it down one time after falling much times and getting back up. And that was this sort of like simple habit that I learned early that you're talking about was, Hey, let's try it. Right. It's a challenge. It's going to be hard. Let's see if we can do it. You never know if you can do it. And so we gave it a go as exhilarating to me and then cut to 10 years later, I'm skiing double diamonds in Colorado with a fake leg. So sometimes when you feel like you have those challenges or things, you know, like, yeah, it's hard. I don't know. Can I do it? I don't know. I mean, direct a movie. Can I edit a movie? I have no epic experience. Like, let's try it. You know, might your first cut might not be what is perfect, but you know, you keep doing it and doing it, doing it, directing or acting or sound or whatever, you know, anything in the industry. And uh, you got to fall down a bunch, but eventually you get from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain or hill in my case. And, uh, pretty exhilarating. You and I are definitely on the same page with all of that. I love the story. And there's one additional thing that I want to just emphasize a little bit more, which is that if I were to make a tattoo out of that entire story, what I think is the most important thing to have in front of me all day, every day, and part of my identity on my skin, you're going to fall, but that's yeah. okay. Yeah. That's what it's all about. That's it, everybody always asks me because I've talked to hundreds of people deconstructing success and mindsets. And they're like, well, you know, if I don't want to listen to 300 hours, how do you distill it down? Fail as fast as possible and fail faster than everybody else. And that's how you're going to become successful. That's it. If you can just fail faster than everyone else is failing, you're going to be successful. Yeah. You have to be okay with it. You have to accept it. It took me a long time to figure that out. I consider myself a recovering perfectionist where, <laughs> you know, I'm the, the straight A kid and, you know, the valedictorian of high school and top grades. And then the real world hit me and I really wasn't prepared for failure. I can't blame my parents because they did all the things right that they needed to, but it wasn't until the first time I really had to manage failure that I realized I have no tools to manage this because I've always been successful at everything I've done. And it wasn't until I learned how to fail that I really started to succeed. So the fact that your mom very early encouraged something and said, you're going to fail, be ready, but you know what? It's okay if it happens. That to me kind of encapsulates everything that we're gonna talk about with you today for this entire conversation. That's awesome, Zach. I also wanted to ask you a question. Um, I, I kind of touch upon this in my talk, but I want to ask you if you felt the same way as like, I sometimes find that some speakers are disingenuous when they say you can do anything that you put your mind to. I agree. Right. Like when you, when you say like, you know, just fail and it's all good. Right. Like, um, I tried water skiing. I grew up Oof. in Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes. And Do you uh, have any video of that? Because I bet that was entertaining. Well, if, yeah, if you like those wipeout, like uh, <laughs> America's Funniest Videos. I mean, I spent so much time on my face that even as a kid, I said to myself, I don't think this is for me. Like, I just couldn't quite do it, even though I could ski down a mountain on snow. I just fell, 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 tried. I couldn't get the balance thing. Um it was just something I couldn't always do. And sometimes I say you can't be six foot five and be a horse jockey. But I, what I, the story that I like to take away from that is like, I tried it, you know, I gave it a go. Um, my dad, my uncle, everyone would kind of try to do the best they could to support me to get me up and all these kind of things. But um, I just couldn't get it going. You know, my friend's daughter the other day said, when I grow up, I want to be a giraffe. You know, so I was hate to, hate to, hate to break it to you sometimes, you know, you can't always do what you set your mind to, right? And I think sometimes if we tamper that expectation that, you know, we give it a go, we try, we fall down, we fail. Sometimes it's, it's, you can't do anything you set your mind to. 
I don't know how you feel about that. I want to ask you I your opinion compl- on that. Oh my God, I totally agree with you. Uh, and I do think that it's, uh, it's the, there's a concept now and there's a title for this that has just been coming around recently because it's become so prevalent. And because you and I are in kind of sort of similar circles, you've probably heard of it as well. It's the topic of toxic positivity, mm, where people online are never negative. They're never saying bad things. Everything's always positive and you can do your best. And that can be just as toxic as negativity. You have to be real realistic about the things that you can and can't do. The difference is I think people's barometers of what's realistic and doable are vastly undershooting what they're really capable of. So I really believe the vast majority of people undersell their capabilities, but there is a limit or there is a ceiling. And I'll give you an example of how I teach this. I haven't really talked about this on the podcast at all, but you asked such a good question. I love it. Um, So I'm sure that you've heard of the concept of SMART goals, S-M-A-R-T, right? Make them specific and measurable and actionable. Da, 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 right? Very corporate speaky. If you want to set yourself some quarterly goals, set smart goals. Yeah. Right. So it's not that smart goals don't work. I think that smart goals are incredibly excruciatingly boring. <laughs> right. Because you're trying to just set this framework that everybody else is using to set very, very similar goals in a different context. So I've actually turned that on its head and I have my students set stupid goals. I like it. Acronym still applies, but it's a stupid goal instead. And here's how it works. By the way, P.S., spoiler alert, most of it is stolen from the SMART framework. It's almost the same, but there's two key differences. Number one, it's specific, exactly the same. And by specific, I mean measurable. T, time sensitive, needs a deadline. Here's where it starts to deviate. You, you better be uncomfortable pursuing this goal. Mm. Because if there's a level of comfort and there's no fear, your goal is not big enough. But P, you still have to be practical. Like, is this something that I can actually achieve? Not that it's not gonna be crazy hard or nearly impossible, but let's be practical. I can't grow up and be a giraffe. If I'm four foot eight, I'm not gonna be a center in the NBA. But if I'm four foot eight, maybe I can be a ninja warrior instead because I can find where in one context, my height is a disability versus it's a superpower. And then the I, is that it must be inspiring. If you're not inspired to go after this thing, just like not being uncomfortable, eh, it's probably boring. And then most importantly, if you're gonna properly set a goal that you can achieve, you must put yourself in the D driver seat. If you're setting a goal that requires all these outside circumstances and things outside of your control, you set yourself up for failure. So yes, you and I could not be more on the same page about this idea of toxic positivity. Put your mind to it. Just, I want you to create a vision board and I want you to manifest your affirmations and you can make anything possible. (coughs) But I also believe that the vast majority of people vastly undersell what they're capable of and what they can achieve. I love it. Yeah, I was listening to the uh, Jocko podcast, which I also really enjoy. He's an Navy SEAL and he's a tough, tough guy. And he said, set unbelievable goals, set unbelievably hard goals. And I really love that, like, you know, really, you know, pushing yourself to try things you think that you might not be able to do, but then also not like getting so crushed, perhaps if you can't achieve it, but at least trying, you know, exactly what you're saying is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, absolutely. And that, that's the story of the last five years of my life, as you you know, a little bit of the story, because we've talked about it at Tony's, but it's the difference between. The, the, the smart goal is I want to lose 10 pounds in three months. 
The stupid goal is I'm going to become an American Ninja Warrior. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Also losing 10 pounds in the process. Right. But the framing of it totally changes such that instead of I just need to reach this short term goal and cut some calories and, you know, skip a cheat meal or two versus my entire lifestyle is going to transform and change who I am as a person. Had I not set that goal, you and I wouldn't be talking. I wouldn't know Tony. I wouldn't know all the people in a circle. But by setting that one stupid goal, my entire life has changed and I'm surrounded by different people. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculously hard goal. And it's amazing what as human beings we really can do when we set our minds to it. Like you said, set those sort of smaller goals, the long-term goals, but like really set that bar high and and not being so crushed, you know, well, you, you, you did it, which is a great example. And, you know, Jock was an ABCL and doing like these incredibly hard things. Um, I don't know. I, I just find it inspiring. I like being around those kind of people that have that energy that like, think I'm going to go to outer space, right? Like you can do it, right? If you set your mind, it's crazy. I mean, it's really hard and insane. You probably have to get up three o'clock in the morning, but I don't know. I, I, it's fun to surround yourself with those kind of people that really push you to do interesting things. Yeah. I mean, it just brings up this quote that uh, has been used ad nauseum in our, our world over and over again, which is that you are the sum total of the five people you surround yourself with. Oh, that's interesting. I believe that, I don't know you know, yeah. I, oh, you never heard that. That's funny. It's, I, it's a very, know, yeah. uh, uh, but it's, they, they've actually done science, scientific studies on it. And they have found that, um, they, they did it in the, the context of weight loss specifically, but if you're surrounded with a bunch of people that are all working hard to, to lose weight or get in shape or whatever, by default, you just adopt those habits and you just start losing weight as opposed to you have all the same goals, all the same habits, you're eating the same foods, et cetera, et cetera, but you're surrounded by people that either aren't interested or are actively trying to sabotage you. Oh, you're never going to do that. You can't stick with it. They don't reach the same goal. So it's all about who you surround yourself with, which I'm, I'm the same way. Like I just the energy of somebody that's very practical and down to earth and, oh, I shouldn't do that. That's not I, that's too hard. That's not for me. It's just boring. I want to be surrounded by people that are like, you know what? Screw it. I've got a wooden leg and I'm going to play in Division one baseball in college. Why not? <laughs> I tried. I, I know. And it. you failed, but you yeah, tried. I failed. I tried. That's what I love. Yeah. That's the part that I love the most. So I think that uh, we've we've done enough of the, the teasing of the mindset stuff. And those that are listening, many of them are like, when are we going to talk about super troopers? Let's talk about super troopers. So how do we apply all of the things about failure and challenges and setting big goals to the journey that was creating super troopers? Yeah, talk about uh, achieving goals. Um, I was talking about, I actually have a friend who won the lottery, which is insane. Like he went in, one day went into a gas station bought a lottery ticket and won. I mean, the odds are greater than getting hit by an asteroid, I think is what the statistics are. But I feel the same about super troopers, right? Like we made super troopers as an independent film. So we had to, we were a sketch comedy group. We performed for many years, kind of like the Beatles did in Germany. Like we performed in small clubs in Greenwich village for like five years before we made a film and nobody had ever heard of us, but we had, you know, done our time for years and years and years developing ourselves as a sketch comedy group. So we put in a lot of practice, a lot of hard work, but you know, we had to go make the movie independently, make it so it was strong enough to get into the Sundance Film Festival. And then I, 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 we may have been the only movie that got bought at the Sundance Film Festival and actually put in theaters. There may be a, another movie by just blanking right now, but um, the odds of that are kind of similar to winning the lottery or getting hit by an asteroid in a sense. Um, but 
I think that all goes back to the lesson I'm trying to say is that it, to me, it all goes back to that one day when I was skiing and my mom said, you're going to fall down, but just keep getting back up again, 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 and again. And it was just years of rejection and hard work and, um, but keep going, you know, it's like what you're talking about is you just, you set that goal. You set the goal for the, uh, American Ninja Warrior. Uh, we set the goal that we wanted to have a movie come out in theaters. So what happened was we were a sketch comedy group in New York city, performing live shows, just scraping by, I mean, totally scraping by. And there were movies that were starting to show up in theaters that were coming out of this thing called the Sundance film festival. And there was reservoir dogs and there was, um, clerks and uh el mariachi and all these like great independent filmmakers were making these very low budget films going to sundance film festival in park city utah getting bought and then put in these theaters and we were in new york city and they would come on the theaters and we go watch them we were like we are going to make a movie that's going to be on that screen and you know i'm sure everybody laughed at us like what are the odds that that could happen but we worked really hard we wrote 20 drafts of a script we shot a half an hour feet film. I mean, it's not a feature, half an hour film to kind of learn. And then we shot a feature film for $100,000 that we scraped together on credit cards and borrowing from aunts and uncles. And we shot it at, at the University, Colby University, where we went. And that was all training kind of to learn how to do this creative stuff that most of the people that are watching this podcast, you know, you work in the creative field. So that was our film school in a way. Uh, nothing happened with those things, but it was a way for us to learn how to do it. And then, so Super Troopers was our second feature. And by then we were kind of learning the craft, but we still had to make it independently and then cross our fingers that it would get sold. And um, in 2001, it got sold at the Sundance Film Festival to Fox Searchlight and ended up in theaters. But I do believe that all of that belief that I could do something that was that challenging all started from when I was a kid, that one day on this, on this, on the ski hill. Well, the, the piece of this that I found so interesting is you started with the analogy of I've got a buddy that won the lottery and this happening to us was kind of like winning the lottery. And the the natural progression from that, from somebody that doesn't know the story, and I want to dig in maybe even a little bit deeper, but I bet more than once you've heard, oh, man, you guys got so lucky. Everybody. You got into Sundance and got you like you were so lucky. But how much of it was really luck versus perseverance and absolutely blindly with all the grit and determination possible, just forging ahead because you hadn't achieved the goal you wanted to achieve yet? Yeah, that's what it was. I mean, it, it really was mostly determination and perseverance. I mean, obviously, luck is involved, right? You have to kind of catch lightning in a bottle when you do anything creatively. I think anybody who's watching this that works in the field understands that. We've made films that we didn't catch lightning in a bottle, but, you know, you do the best you can. You try, right? <laughs> Well, a lot of people, it's interesting, after Super Jerks came out, they said, well, you guys just came out of the blue. You're lucky you got into Sundance. And, you know, like they thought it was luck, but they didn't understand that we uh, we were scrounging along uh, writing and performing sketch comedy in a uh, cabaret club in Greenwich Village for five years. Like we would have to lug a TV from our apartment and a VCR and a stand. And they were tube TVs and we'd have to shoot them here. So here's what we did. We did live sketch shows, right? We like SNL, you do a live sketch and then you'd have like one of those SNL shorts. And we wanted to be able to change costumes in the stairwell. The only thing we had was a stage, a piano and a, a five step fire escape on the side of this cabaret club in Greenwich Village. 
so five of them, we were piled in this staircase where we change outfits, but you had to have little three minute movies or whatever you want to call them uh, in order to change costumes because you had to have some time to change. So we would shoot, edit, put it on a VHS tape. We'd lug this gigantic tube TV, put it in the, Jay would have to get his car from the garage, pull in front of our apartment. We'd carry it down the stairs, put it in his car, drive through Grand Village, which you know how packed it is on Friday night. Try to park in front of this cabaret bar where they're doing drag shows and a piano on the first level. We go through that crowd up the second floor, this small little cabaret room. We bring this gigantic tube TV, VHS, plug it in, plug the cords in the back, put a VHS tape in it, have the remote on the side stage. I mean, now with YouTube, I mean, it's so ridiculously easy, right? But we would have to do this every show. And we'd perform that for three months. We'd do a sketch show a short video, do a sketch, show a short video. And that's how we sort of learned the first sort of technique of uh, film and then comedy, right? So we, we'd also, ha- it was two drink minimum and you had to bring five people. So we'd have to go around New York City and hand out flyers and ask people, do you like to laugh? Do you like to laugh? We walk around Washington Square Park or NYU and we hand out flyers trying to recruit our own audience. So yeah, it was a hell of a lot of grit and determination. Like everyone thought it was overnight success, but man, it was... Pounding the, pounding the pavement. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the Topo Mat. The Topo Mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. There's always years and years of those kinds of stories behind what most people would consider an overnight success. Every yeah, once sure. in a while, there is somebody that is legit an overnight success. 
They go in and they have lunch at the right place at the right time. And an agent comes up and says, you'd be perfect for this movie. And then all of a sudden, you know, you become the next A-list star, right? Happens once in a lifetime, probably even less than people winning the lottery. The rest of those stories where it looks like somebody's an overnight success story and they got their own career lottery ticket, stories just like that one. And I think what, what so many people miss when they're in it and I would guess that maybe even you did. I know I'm guilty of it as well. When you're in it doing those things, when you're actively carrying the cart, you're just like, God, this is such a pain in the ass. Why do we have to keep doing this? What you don't realize, those are going to be the moments you miss the most. Those are going to be the stories that you love telling people someday. It's not, I'm so successful now, and now I can easily make a movie, and I have millions of dollars. Like The stories about lugging the cart in and out of Greenwich Village, those are the moments that so many people get frustrated by, and they don't realize a lot of that's the best part of the story. Mm, yeah, you don't realize the time, but it's, it's, it's grit. Grit. I think grit's a good word to describe it. Yeah. So the, yeah, one of the stories, yeah, totally. Uh, and there was a, a story that this brought up that I don't think I've ever told before. I haven't told this for years and years. Um, but the idea of you lugging something really, really heavy up and down the steps triggered memory in my mind. That's perfect for everything that we're talking about here. It's a perfect segue. Um, when I was in college making my first scripted short film, one of the members of our group had a physical disability. He had muscular dystrophy and he didn't have use of his arms or his legs. And we were shooting the short film on the third floor of a student apartment building with no elevator. Every single day we were shooting, he was our producer. He was doing, you know, permits and paperwork and like just all the, the producing type stuff because he couldn't physically lift anything, but he was still very much actively contributing. And I will never forget the memory of all of us at the beginning of every shoot, every shoot day, we had to physically carry the wheelchair up three mm -hmm. flights of steps. And then we would have to carry him back down at the end of the day. And that to me is one of those stories and those moments where at the time, God, I mean, how, if they just had an elevator, it would save us like 20 minutes of our day. Like time is precious. We got to get these shots. We got to get these shots. This is so frustrating. That's probably one of my 10 most cherished memories of my entire life. <laughs> and the segue is he became my best friend. Oh, really? And I ended up, I, yes, I ended up spending eight years of my life creating a documentary film that was a biographical retelling of his entire story. I didn't know it at the time because he was just a kid in our class with a wheelchair. And I said to him, looks like nobody else wants to have you in their group. Come to our group. You come work with us. We'll figure it out. Had no idea how much that would change my life. I found out throughout the course of uh, getting to know him better. He was the first quadriplegic to ever become a licensed scuba diver. And because of him, there's now an entire industry of teaching scuba diving to people with disabilities, which is probably very similar to the skiing that you were talking about as well. Yeah. But he had a saying, and that saying is going to be the perfect segue to what I think you and I both agree is kind of the, the crux of this conversation. His saying was, everybody has a disability. Mm. And anytime I talk about this, I get some weird looks. Some people get a little bit offended by this. First, those that think they don't have disabilities, but then people that do have disabilities. So I'm curious, having heard this phrase, before we dig into it, what's your first reaction to hearing that everybody has a disability? What does that even mean? Yeah, well, interesting enough, I'm starting to you know, work on a book and the title is called Everyone Has a Wooden Leg. So same thing, different words. Uh, it just, the, to me, it's the idea that you, you might not have a prosthetic body part, but we all have some sort of thing that gets in our way. 
or some challenge that we have, right? It could be physically emotional, physical in certain cases, but we all have something that mentally we, well, something we find as a handicap, right? It could be, you're not, I'm not great at sports. I'm not great at art. I'm not, there's something that we find that we're not good at and we place obstacles in our own way, right? So mentally we sort of have to try to overcome something that we find hard, right? So for me, like I got to overcome running, but somebody else might have depression or somebody else might have cerebral palsy. Somebody might um, feel tired all the time. Somebody might struggle with weight loss. I mean, some, and we all, after every time I give my talk, everybody, not everyone, that's kind of an exaggeration, but a lot of people will come up to me and tell me what their wooden leg is. When I kind of had that saying, they struggle with my husband has cancer and it's been really hard because I'm working full-time job and I have to go to doctor appointments or, you know, something that is their sort of challenge. So I think everybody has a challenge. I mean, life's so freaking hard, right? Like Buddha said, life is struggle, right? So even that definition of Buddha saying life is struggle is that we all have something that we struggle with. Life's hard. Yeah. All existence is essentially suffering. If yeah, you want to get really Buddhist, everything that we do is essentially suffering. So it's not about alleviating the suffering. It's about better managing it, having strategies to manage it, because that's essentially what we're doing. Right. And uh, to go even one layer deeper, because I've really really analyze the word disability to better understand people's reactions to it. And what I find is most common is that when people hear the word disabled, the immediate first image that goes into their mind, person in wheelchair. Yeah. Right, that's pretty much it. I mean, we've even got the signs, the blue signs that are there for the good parking, right? Disabled, you get the good parking, you have a physical disability. And what I try to help people better understand, because this is one of the parts of my program, is that disabilities and challenges I find are slightly different. From somebody coming from your perspective, I want to workshop this um, because I'm really interested in your perspective. I think that when it comes to a challenge and a disability, the difference is that with a challenge, you can you can find different ways to to circumvent it and achieve it and overcome it. However, with a disability, the first step, you just have to accept it, right? I don't think that you having a wooden leg is a challenge as much as a disability because you can't say, well, there, I, I could find a way to grow a leg and have one. I, whatever it takes, if I put my mind to it, I'm growing a leg, right? You've accepted, I don't have a leg. Thanks to modern technology, it's almost kind of a non-thing for you at this point. It was different in the 70s, and there were challenges caused by your disability. But there is no changing the fact that biologically, you don't have part of a leg. I'm only laughing because one time I had sort of an astrologer-type person tell me that if I thought about it hard enough, I could grow my leg back. See, because if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. But to a certain extent, to a certain extent, yes, but to a certain extent, no. So I always say that when it comes to a disability, and again, it doesn't have to be physical, mental, it could be geographical, it could be ethnic, like, you know, in certain contexts, the fact that your skin is a certain color becomes very much a disability, right? But it's something that, first of all, can't be changed. It can't be fixed. It just is what it is, and you accept it, but it's only a disability in a certain context. So an example would be that in the context of being able to run a marathon, you not having a leg is a disability. It doesn't mean you can't do it, but it's certainly gonna make it a lot more challenging. However, in other contexts, let's say for example, in the context of being a public speaker, 
is having one leg a disability for you? No. In a way, I would argue it might actually give you a tiny bit of an edge and a little bit of an advantage because you have something that's more motivational and inspirational to talk about than just some regular guy with a normal life that wants to be a motivational speaker, would it not? Sure. I'll agree with you on that, yeah. Yeah, so I, I feel like that what, what I'm trying to do, and there's a whole lot of things that I'm doing uh, with this program, but one of them is helping people reframe things that they feel are making them less than others. Well, I'm less than others because I'm missing a leg or because I'm in a wheelchair or because I have ADHD or I deal with mental health and depression issues. I'm less than others. But if you change the context of it, sometimes that disability or that kryptonite can become a superpower. And I think you're the perfect example of somebody that said, here are the cards that I was dealt. I'm accepting that this is my reality, but let me turn it into a superpower rather than use it as an excuse. Yeah. So speaking to somebody that is in this world, am I on the right track? Because like I said, every once in a while I bring this up and I get weird looks. So if I'm saying something that is in some way offensive or construed the wrong way, I want to know that. But I truly believe in this because this is what the subject of the film, Christopher, what he believed in. And... I mean, the, the, he literally, he was the first person that I always make the joke. Yeah, I'm the cripple in the room. And people be like, oh, my God. He's in, but then I dug into it. It's like, well, I do that because it breaks the ice. It takes the pressure away from, oh, you're different. And I don't know if I should approach you. Like he, he used humor to kind of break that ice and just accept, yeah, this is my reality. I'm cool with it, which means you get to be cool with it. Yeah. To me, that's right. I, I think I, I hope that as we evolve and I think as it's changed a lot since when I was growing up, like instead of it being such a anomaly or like, you know, pointing and like, I think I told you a story, I can't remember if we were record, recording, we were talking about it, but when I was on the playground, kids would take my leg off and throw it over my head. They're playing pickle in the middle as I'm trying to get my leg as they're throwing it around. I mean, it was such a, um, an oddity, I guess, like in my school that I was the one kid that had a wooden leg that for some reason kids felt the need they thought it was funny to take one kid would take off my leg and go chase the girls all over the playground with it and then some would take it off and play pickle in the middle and the teacher would have to come out and help me go back to class you know i can kind of laugh about it now but um i hope we get to a place where we just say man man i don't know everyone's got something right everyone's disabled everyone's got some sort of handicap we can talk about depression we can talk about i don't know whatever it is you know just like why can't we all just admit that we have shortcomings or disabilities or challenges and like just be out out in the open about it all? I don't know. I hope that we can ever kind of evolve a little bit to that place where like we just say, yeah, all right, everyone's got something. Who cares if you're the kid that's got the wooden leg? Who cares if you're the kid who's missing two fingers or a kid doesn't have any hair? I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's just get to a point where we're not like, laughing and making fun of people and like that's the odd person out or have to have these committees for disabilities and i appreciate all those are great but i hope we can even evolve past that where you have to have all that it's just accept it here here kind of totally agree you know i i the, one of the reasons uh, if you want to get into this i can uh, if you want to drill down on that more we can i was going to just kind of bring it around full circle of um i was saying before that i used to always want to try to act in movies and not ever say i had a wooden leg I purposely never talked about it in interviews. I mean, I think I did about four or five films, major films. We did with Fox Searchlight, Warner Brothers, uh, movies for major studios, theatrical releases. And I never told anyone I had an artificial leg. And it was very specific because I never wanted to be pigeonholed as only getting cast 
as somebody who came back from a war and lost their leg and was in a wheelchair. And like, I just never felt Hollywood was evolved enough. And this was before all this kind of diversity stuff that's happening right now. And then, uh, I was, I was doing it. I was acting in movies and I never talked about it. And I was able to play an able-bodied normal person because that's what we should be able to do. Right. But then I, I wanted to get in shape for a movie and I was at a gym and there's a flyer and it said, come be part of the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life, mentally, emotionally, physically. We're putting together this test group for this thing called P90X. And, uh, I would go to gym, but I wouldn't work out probably as hard as I could because I didn't have anybody pushing me as hard as somebody. So this group said, it's going to be hard. It's going to be six days a week, 90 minutes. You got to commit. You can't miss a day. You got to follow a food plan, all this kind of stuff. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, free trainer, I'll work harder. I'll get in shape in this movie. So I go and I be in this test group for P90X. And at the time there was no real extreme home fitness movement, right? It was Richard Simmons or Cheryl Teagues, Jane Fonda. You know I mean? It wasn't really like, there's no CrossFit that the idea that they were making this video was they were thinking that professional athletes or people really high at athletic level would do something that really made them better athletes. It wasn't really meant, I don't think at the time to be something that went out to every home in America. It was going to be kind of a niche idea. And I said, Oh, I'll, I'll get in shape. So I did a test group and about 60 days into it, you know, it's really freaking hard. And, uh, I was falling over in yoga, all these like balance positions, plyometrics. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So like 60 days in, I realized I kind of overcame something and I was able to, I was stronger, getting in better shape. Uh, and I would always wear sweatpants because I was embarrassed about being handicapped. And I just wanted to just go in there and get a workout in. I wasn't trying to do anything else, but just try to get a workout, get a better shape for this movie. But about 60 days in, man, I was starting to do the plyometrics. I was able to hold the balance poses. I was able to do a lot of these really hard uh, physical activities. And one day I showed up, I said, screw it, man. I'm going to wear shorts today because I was starting to get this stuff down. So I show up in shorts one day and I just see Horton looking down like, what the hell is that? Everybody in the class is like looking at me like, I got a fake leg. And he's like, what? You've been here for like 60 days and you now just show up in shorts and you've been doing this whole thing with the wooden leg? I'm like, yeah. I don't know. I just kind of clicked. I'm, it's great. I love working out this hard and uh, really being able to do it. And he's like, all right. And he just treated like everybody else. Everybody else is cool. And then we finished 90 days of the test group. And he said, uh, still Hansky. Hey, we became pretty good pals. After that, we were hanging out, going to the beach, working out. And uh, he was like, hey, I want you to be in the plyometric video. I was like, in the video? Like on a, in a background person, like Suzanne Summers thing? And he's like, yeah, it'd be really cool. If you are doing a plyometrics, which is, I think, the hardest discipline of all P90X as a kid with one leg. It's it's quite possibly the hardest 60 minutes of any home fitness program ever created ever. Plyometrics is just, it, he calls it death by jumping for a reason. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, just bottom line, it's a really hard uh, jumping exercise for your legs. And, uh, and I was like, nah, I'm good. No, thanks. I don't want to be in an exercise video. I'm trying to be an actor. I'm in movies. And he's like, he's like, all right, well, think about it. I mean, like, there's a lot of people that struggle with diabetes, overweight, depression, all sorts of things. Like, maybe you having a wooden leg, I know you probably think of it as a disability or handicap, but maybe it's something that is a positive that you could uh, help people. And I was like, damn you, damn you, Horton. <laughs> putting it in those ways, putting it that way. Um, I thought about it for a while. I'm like, I don't know, I'm trying to not be the guy with the wooden leg. 
And it was the first time in my life, I think, that I, I got pictures. I Sometimes when I tell my story, I show when I was growing up, I'd go to the beach and I'd wear pants. I used to wear like jeans, like my family. Uh, we went down to Florida one time for spring break with my mom and dad and sister. And I'm down on the beach wearing jeans because I didn't want to be a handicapped kid. And I, I had to make like a life decision. I was like, I can embrace this having a disability or I can be the person who's trying to hide from it. And I said, you know what? I've been in these movies. All right, I'll do it. I'll do it, man. I'll be in your P90X video. And uh, so I did it in shorts. And I think that was the first time that I ever was sort of on film doing anything where I exposed my legs sort of to the mass audience. And then it went on to be like the number one home exercise video in America and just took off. Totally unexpected what they thought. I mean, it's a really great workout. And Tony obviously talks the talk, walks the walk, and it's the real deal. And that, uh, so now I, and now I, I accept it. I, I, I hope that we get to this place where everyone's like, oh yeah, who cares? I mean, that was, I don't know. I mean, I should, we shouldn't even be talking about it in the sense like it should just be like everybody in the world just says, yeah, I have a disability. I got a challenge. I got a handicap. Aren't we all just one people? One are we all like one type of humanity? Who cares? Unfortunately, we just have so little time on our days because we're spending so much of it trying to prove to everybody that we're perfect and we have all of our shit figured out. There's no time left in the day to be vulnerable and share our struggles and share where we're human, right? And that this is – I'm not going to get on this soapbox. I have many soapboxes. I actually have an addition to the house that holds all of my soapboxes. Um, <laughs> this is one I'm not going to bring up, but just social media has the power – to get us to the point where you and I are talking and is doing the exact opposite because we spend so much time creating this false perception of all the things we have figured out. Here's the perfect day, here's my perfect breakfast, I have the perfect work day on my laptop, outside doing my own thing, hashtag living the hustle life, hashtag blessed life, and it's creating this environment where we don't feel accepted if we're posting something that is ugly or dirty or real or vulnerable, but imagine the power and how quickly we could change this if we just flipped the, the switch on social media and instead of here's all the stuff that you're kind of making up or just exaggerating that's BS versus let's all just be real i really think that the, that's an area where we can we can make this much more of a reality and i think some people are using it the right way to do exactly that so i know some people that have really leveraged social media and today's technology to be able to amplify the idea that yes i might have a disability in one context it's an ability in another so i'm always trying to help people to identify first what's what you consider the disability let's accept it now let's reframe it so the kryptonite becomes your superpower i love it Brilliant. What I'm curious about next is we've talked about how you've gone from this kid that was really athletic, loved baseball, football, basketball, couldn't play the football, but you still loved it. Then you decided you wanted to, to go as far as you could in baseball and you got there. Made the, the switch to acting. And if we have time, I want to dig into that piece a little bit further because it's a pretty yeah. damn good story about how you decided to go from athlete to acting. But then ultimately, I want to talk about public speaking. So we're going to take a little bit of a detour because I, I don't know how much value it has other than it's just such a good story. Talk to me about how you made the transition from athlete to actor because you told this that was almost on the floor. Um, oh, oh, yeah. The, the true story of how I got into comedy. <laughs> uh-huh the, the leg story not that they're not uh, yeah. all leg stories but yeah. this is one of the best stories i've ever heard <laughs> i uh i was at colgate university and i it's division one sports so i was captain of my high school baseball team i always loved baseball spring came around and i wouldn't try it out for the baseball team and then, you know surprise surprise i wasn't big enough fast enough to play division one baseball it's pretty hard 
and so this was the time when I could have become, become introverted again and stayed home and not gone out. But I said, ah, you know, I was depressed for a little bit, but I, um, I was walking by the campus university theater department and the doors open. I looked inside and they were rehearsing and there's this girl on stage, you know, I thought she was cute. So I kind of stuck my head in and I sat in the back and I watched and I thought, wow, you know, I always loved Caddyshack and Animal House and Fletch and all these comedies growing up. I was like, man, I want to try getting on stage. I want to get on stage with that girl. So, uh, I don't know. I started auditioning for theater productions, but man, I, the truth is I, I had never got cast in one show for like two years and I kept trying and trying. And I said, uh, if I, if I really, if, well, want to make this work, I probably should sign up for an acting class. So I finally signed up for an acting class at school. And uh, the first thing they made us do was show up on a Saturday morning and build sets and how that's supposed to help you as an acting amateur, but it was free labor. So I didn't, you know, I just did what I did to get a grade. And it was Saturday morning and it's college. So, you know, I was hungover and I was tired early morning. So I'm just hammering away at this set. And I look over and there's this tall, skinny Indian guy. East Indian, and he's also hammering away. He's tired too. And um, next thing you know, we start talking and uh, start talking about where we're from. And he said he's from Chicago. I say I'm from Minnesota. He's like, oh, Minnesota. Isn't that where the Vikings play? I was like, what? This guy's coming hard this morning. So I was like, oh, the Vikings. Okay, yeah. Okay, the the Bears. Oh, the Bears. Yeah. And and he said, said, the Vikings are a lot tougher than the Bears crush you guys and he's like oh okay purple rain why don't you come back and uh talk to me after you guys win a super bowl now uh my vikings are 0 four in the super bowl anybody who's a minnesota viking fan can feel the pain so um i kind of think bears fans can feel the pain too so and uh, just for a point of reference born and raised in northern wisconsin cheesehead and packer fans so just got a full disclaimer put that out there but continue you guys guys got super bowl rings um (laughs) And he was always wearing a McMahon jersey. And uh, so I was just like, oh, okay, Chicago. You're so tough. You think you're so tough. You think you do this? So I reached down and I grabbed that hammer that I was building the set with. And I just go, whack! And I smacked it on my ankle as hard as I could. And he was like, what? And I was like, you think you're so tough? Here, can you do this? And I stick out the hammer to him. Thinking that was it. You know what I mean? In my mind, like, that's it. But I didn't expect it when he's like, oh, you want to play that game, do you? And he reaches out and he grabs my hammer and he goes whack on his ankle. And he's like, holy crap, Jesus. And he fucking grabs his ankle and he starts squirming around the floor. And I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting that to go in this direction. What am I going to do now? And I uh, I look around and I was like, oh, okay. And I see we're in a, you know, a theater, Presidium Arch, right? You got the cement arch over the theater and i i go all right hey chicago if you're this tough can you do this and i run across the stage and i kick the cement wall as hard as i could straight on with my foot and he, i i think and that's it right i think he's gonna be like okay i'm done you're nuts instead i hear screw you minnesota and he comes he's wearing birkenstocks too and he comes flying across the stage and he kicks the cement wall as hard as he can and he drops down the ground and he's rubbing his toe and he's like that's not so bad. What else have you got? And I'm like, ah, this guy's crazy. And I'm thinking this game of Kianas Mas Macho is going to be finito, but um, it's not. It's not. We're we're in this for City Pride, right? And uh, so now I got to find something that's going to make him 
bail out of this game. So I, I look over and I see it. I'm like, yeah, I got it. This is definitely going to be it. And uh, I reach down and I grab a pneumatic staple gun. Because we're using pneumatic staple guns to build sets. And I'm like, hey, Chicago, are you this tough? And he goes, you don't have the guts. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, you don't think I got the guts? He's like, you can't do, you don't, you're not going to do that. I'm like, he's like, you don't, I was like, you don't want to do this. He's like, I don't, you know, anyway, anyway, I, I'm getting ahead of my story. I, I take the pneumatic staple gun and uh, I say, Chicago, you this tough. And I put it up to my leg and he says, you don't have the guts. I'm like, oh yeah. I go, hot out, Bronco. And I put a pneumatic staple <laughs> with a staple gun into my leg. Now he comes running over and he's like, there's no way that's real. And he starts inspecting my leg and he's pulling up my pants. And they're like, for sure, there is a staple into my leg. And he's like, oh, my God, did it hurt? I'm like, yeah, it hurt. I'm probably going to take me to the hospital afterwards, man. You don't want to do that. And he goes, I don't want to do it. I have to do it. And now I'm thinking, oh, my God, this guy is like either going crazy or he's definitely tougher than me because he grabs a staple gun. But he starts searching for, like, the fatty meat of his leg. I did it in my shin, right, on the back of my leg. But he starts, like, grabbing different parts of his leg that he thinks have more fat on it that is not going to hurt as much. And he finally settles like on the back of his leg and he's pulling out and he's like, I could probably do it here. And he takes a staple gun and he puts it up the back of his leg <laughs> and he's about to pull the trigger. And I'm thinking, man, at the moment I'm like wrestling, like, you know, he was making fun of my Vikings. I'm like, I should let him do this, but I'm like, uh, my reason and kindness, Minnesota kindness got the best of me. I'm like, hold on, hold on. I got, what are you, are you out of your freaking mind? I'm like, puppy's made of wood. I got a wooden leg. And I pull it off and I show it to him. And thinking he's probably going to like strangle me or kill me or just be totally pissed off. But he breaks down laughing. He's like, oh, <laughs> he thought it was hysterical. I guess we were kind of cut from the same cloth ultimately. And he sticks out his hand. He said, hey, I'm Jay Chandler Saker. And I'm like, hey, hey Eric Stolansky. And uh, we became uh, uh, best friends after that. And ultimately, he put together the comedy group at Colgate University. And he asked me if I would come audition for it based on our, our time uh, building sets that day. Uh, went and auditioned for uh, the sketch comedy group, got cast. Uh, we were called Chard Goosebeak at Colgate University. We performed for the next two years. And then after that, we moved to New York City, became Broken Lizard. And here we are 30 years later. Uh, we just finished our eighth movie called Quasi, which will be on Hulu in 2024. Nice. Definitely going to have to make sure we check that out. But um, uh, the the story is amazing in any context, but seeing it via Zoom doesn't do it justice because to watch you perform it, live seeing the whole body and like the animation and everything else like i just i remember my face hurting after you telling that story the first time that i had ever heard it like it's it literally it hurt it is more yeah, of a fun it's act just, it it's it's amazing but the, what's what i love about it the takeaway is that it wasn't just uh, you know that this macho thing you found somebody that was cut from a similar cloth and yeah. a lot of it has to do with the exact direct path that got you to where you ended up getting being a filmmaker and producer and director and actor and everything else and would you not have gotten there if that story hadn't happened of course not but it did become a part of that path yeah it's kind of funny uh i don't even know like you know, the kind of weird serendipitous moments for to it fortuitous things that kind of bring us where we are. Sometimes it's just that interesting person you meet somewhere at a intersection or a workout class or on a zoom or, you know what I mean? You never know. Sort of, I was reading uh, the director. I, I always mispronounce the name, but he, he directed the latest Thor movie and mm-hmm. it was, Oh, Taika Waititi. Um, yeah. Taika Waititi, a lot, which such a big fan. And he was, you know, he collaborates like with Jermaine Clement and that, and then a couple other people I was reading about the paper today that he just kind of, he kind of meets somebody and he finds them interesting, he collaborates with them and then they make a project. 
which I thought was kind of cool. Like you just never know who you're going to run into or something happens one day when you kind of just hit it off with somebody. And the next thing you know, you're collaborating, making a project together. And that's where I think we can get back to this concept of finding lightning in a bottle. Because yeah. there's one side of the coin where it says lightning in the bottle is all luck. There's another side of the coin that says to a certain extent, not to a full extent, but to a certain extent, I think you can create that luck. So I want to dive right into something that you do in your speaking engagements that you call the red light, green light game. Because I feel that you can get yourself closer to creating lightning in a bottle if you opened your mind to other possibilities as opposed to this is the path. This must be the path. I shall not deviate from the path and nothing's going to stop me. So talk to me a little bit more about this concept of what you do in your speaking engagements with the red light, green light game and just what it is. Well, um, I think it's keeping an open mind to being open-minded to when something opportunity arises, right? And uh, what I like to say is um, always jump the fence. And the idea of that is um, you're supposed... You know, you've heard the expression, the grass is always greener on the other side. And that people will often say that, I think is a comfort level or some like saying, you know, oh, don't jump over there. You know, the grass is green on the other side. And I, I think it's supposed to mean that you're not supposed to jump that fence and go try it for yourself, right? But then how do you know if you don't take that opportunity and take that opportunity to go try something? And like we talked about, like you might get over there and be really unhappy. It's dusty and dirty or the astroturf's too hot. But, you know, you can always jump back over the fence on the other side. But if you don't try something or take the opportunity when you have the green light, how do you ever know what's the possibility? And so even though we all might have a wooden leg or challenge or disability, and sometimes you think, oh, I can never do that. Well, let's try it. Tried water skiing, it didn't work. Tried snow skiing, and it was awesome. And had I not tried either of those, I never would have got to experience either of them and to decide which one works, which doesn't. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. 
So now let's dive into the nuances of this game, because even though you use it in a slightly different context, I think it can actually change somebody's perspective on when they have a goal and it has to work out this way. I think we've both made it very clear that when you set the destination, you want to make it really, really difficult. Shouldn't be yeah. something that's impractical and can't be done, but let's not sell ourselves short. But I think the challenge that so many people fall into then is not only is this the goal, this must be the path that gets me there. And then as soon as something gets in their way, well, that means I can't get to the goal. Whereas with the red light, green light game, that's a very example in a slightly you know, more comedic and fun context of training your brain to say, well, can't go this direction anymore. I can still go forwards, but I'm gonna have to deviate. So if somebody were to ask you, how do I play? What is the red light, green light game and what are the rules? I see what you're talking about. Uh, I was thinking of a different talk that you had heard me at. Red light, green light is a, uh, a game that I play with a communication company called Game On. And um, at Game On, we work on communication skills with large groups, mass uh, um, with corporations, military, all sorts of different universities and stuff. And the idea with red light, green light is, is redefining how you give and hear and know. So uh, you're telling a story and if somebody you tell, you tell a sentence and if somebody says uh, red light, you have to change how you tell the story. And, um, and the thing about the thing about the lesson that the takeaway from red light, green light is all day long, we are given uh, no's and we hear no's and either it can shut you down or it can take you in a new direction. And creatively, uh, if somebody, if like, if I'm in a writing meeting and I throw out an idea, and someone's like, no, nah, that's stupid. I get shut down. And then I might like sit down in my chair and not want to express ideas again. The, oh, oh, I might not want to express ideas, like a further idea. <clears throat> but instead, you could say like, oh, okay, I see where you're going with that. But let's try something else. You have something else that we might go with? And it's, it's still saying no, but it's reframing it in a way that's trying to pull something more out of me. Right? So then I continue to throw in another idea. And they're like, um, what else have you got? Uh, say something, uh, another idea, like what else have you got, right? You're still hearing no, but it's encouraging you, you to keep going. And often if somebody encourages you to keep trying something new again and again and again, often that fourth or fifth time that you try, you might get the most creative, interesting idea, right? So you could give someone a hard no, that's dumb. And it shuts them down. You may never get to that fifth idea where you get something really interesting and creative out of it. So that's the red light, green light game that we play with Game on Communications, where uh, it's often very fun and encouraging. And when you're giving a no, it's usually with a smile on your face instead of saying, no, it's dumb. It's like, no, what else have you got? Hey, what else have you got? And you're still giving no, but we can encourage them in a positive way. So yeah, as a person who's um, delivering a pitch meeting, marketing meeting, sales meeting, whatever it is, you know, we can be encouraged to keep trying a new idea, a new idea, a new idea. Until finally you get to one, it's like, yeah, that's a great one. Now that's a fun idea. Let's run with that one. And so that's the person who's giving it. You're encouraging that person to, uh, that the red light you're giving is a no, is a positive no. And also as someone who's playing it, when you're hearing a no, you're not hearing a no so negative that it shuts you down, but you kind of try to reframe how you hear a no to try hearing in the sense of someone saying, what else have you got instead of no, that's dumb. Because no, that's dumb. Re makes you retreat and sit down and, and become introverted and, and shut down where if you hear it as like, oh, they're really just saying, hey, what else have you got? And like, okay, okay, I can come up with something different, right? So it's how we hear and give a no. And we remember we talked about earlier about, you know, how, how 
powerful it is to support somebody and have their back. So like when my mother, when I'm growing up and she says, she could have, when I said, Hey, let's go skiing. She could very easily have been like, no, we're not going skiing. You know what I mean? That's the easy thing to do as a parent. Like we're not going skiing. It, it's, you got to drive there. You got to put on a lot of clothes. It's expensive. You, you got one leg, you know, no, we're not going skiing. But instead the very powerful thing that she did was she supported me and she was like, yeah, all right, let's try this. You know, I'll support you. And that changed my life. Right. And it's the same kind of thing. It's in a very uh, daily basis. The red light, green light idea is when we give uh, and support somebody and we have to give no's all day long, we have to hear no's all day long, but can we do it in a supportive, positive way that encourages people to get to that fourth or fifth idea instead of shutting them down? I'm going to make sure in the show notes that I put a link to a video where you're actually demonstrating this live. Cool. And just as a little teaser to really compel people to do it, it goes from this woman talking about Christmas morning versus her grandmother jumping in the backyard on a trampoline. Of course, it's all fictional and it's fun, but just the, the trajectory yeah. of one place to the next in a couple of minutes is amazing. I actually want to demonstrate this very quickly, but I want to, I want to tweak a little bit of it. I'm going to tweak it to your liking because it's your game and not mine. But how can we change this slightly and actually demo how it works, but a little bit more related to here's the path that I see to get where I want to go. I've got a goal and I've got points A and B and C and D and E and F and G and A. It's all in my mind and I just have to do these things. But then we're going to throw 10 different wrenches in the works and I'm going to have to innovate. And my choices are the goal no longer works versus goal is the same. The path is different and I got to figure it out. So how can we demonstrate how this works in a slightly different context? Do you want to play red light, green light? I want to play red light, green light right now. And I want people okay. to hear this because this is one of those things that in five minutes, you can completely rewire the way that somebody sees obstacles. It's a really cool game. Yeah. Uh, I really love working with, I consult with this company game on and uh, we gamify uh, the idea of teaching communication lessons, right? So you get to physically get up on your feet, you get to play a game and then talk about the lessons and the takeaways. And so it's really fun to physically see how it works. And like you said, it's not, you can pre-think about how the story's going to go, but when you throw out a red light, you have to take it in a new direction. And oftentimes it, like you said, it goes from Christmas morning to somewhere completely unexpected. There's always a lot of laughs, a lot of joy and fun with it. Um, even though you're giving a no, which is hap going to happen in life, right? You said there's going to be a lot of wrenches thrown in your direction. You can still, uh, like, Perhaps like we talked about, uh, I couldn't play baseball. I couldn't go water skiing. I still, you can still move forward with your life and do interesting things, even though your life sometimes gives you a no or a red light. Right? That's yeah. That's, that's so let's, let, let's do it. How, how do we play? If I okay. wanted it to do this with my students or I want my students to do this with each other, um, demonstrate how this works. I'll demonstrate, the, the, I'll demonstrate some concept. I will start. And you will, uh, uh, you'll be the person who will be on stage and you'll be telling me a simple thing about your day. And I will simply say, um, yes or no. And, uh, if I give you a, if I say no, you'll have to take your story of your direction, uh, in a new direction. And, um, so you won't go backwards. So for, let's say, for example, if I were to say, um, uh, Zach, what do you have for breakfast? And you said this morning I had eggs and I said, no you would not go backwards and say, no, I did not have eggs. You would simply move the story forward by saying, um, I had watermelon gum, right? You would just 
you don't have to be crazy. You're not trying to go for the laugh. The only rules are I have your back, you have my back, and we're going to work in agreement. We're not going to try to punk each other, right? We're simply trying to have each other's back and make each other look like heroes. And uh, we're not trying to go for the laugh or anything like that. You're just, you're going to, I'm going to ask you simply about your day. And if I say yes, you just continue with your story. If uh, you hear no, you just take in a different direction. And normally if I'm doing this, I will be the person that goes up on stage to make the other person feel comfortable. So if you prefer, I know that you have experience in the creative uh, field. So, and for the sake of time, I thought we would just try one, but normally I would go up on stage. I'll say, look, I'm the person that will, will look like a fool. I don't want you to be nervous. I don't want you to, I'm here to make you um, look good. And you can ask me about my day. You want to try it like that to start? Well, I was going to say that in the spirit of making hard choices, as opposed to the easy ones, the easy choice is to have you warm it up and demo it. The right. hard choice is to throw me right on the hot seat immediately, especially right. for the, the sake of time. I have okay. one quick question for you. What's the result that I'm working towards? Is it that I just want to be more comfortable with adversity? Is that I'm still trying to get to an end result? You said the goal is not to make people laugh. So what, what is a, a general goal that I'm working for that can show whether or not the exercise was successful or not successful? Yeah, I wouldn't even put so much pressure on anything about being successful or trying to have an end goal. Really, we're working on the idea of all, all day through life, all in life, we're going to get no's, but we can take that no and turn it into a positive direction. So for example, you're driving down the highway and a car stops in the right lane. You don't just pull up behind it and stop, right? You go in the left lane, you go around, you keep going forward. So it's about moving forward, being innovative, uh, working on uh, creativity, working on uh, adaptability, change, anything. So if you get a no, it's not stopping you. It's you moving forward in a different direction and seeing that oftentimes that four or fifth choice is something that is a, a fun, creative choice. All right, then let's do it. I love it. All right. Very clearly right. understand this. Let's, uh, let's do it. And Very then I'm cool. going to throw this into, in, into my students as well, because this is going to be so much fun. Okay. Zach, tell me, uh, what's your favorite holiday? Uh, my favorite holiday, uh, I can tell you what my favorite holiday is not, is definitely Halloween. But as far as my favorite holiday, that's actually a really tough one because I don't have an answer. I don't have a favorite holiday because um, you know what? I don't enjoy holidays as much as I enjoy what I do every day. And oftentimes holidays kind of take me away from just being in my zone and doing yeah. my thing. So I don't oh. have a, I, I, my least favorite holiday isn't Halloween. It's my birthday, which circumstantially happened to be within a day of each other. Uh, but right, I don't well, have a favorite holiday. That's a beautiful transition. We'll just, I want to hear just about your day to day. And if I give you a no, I just want you to keep the story moving forward in a positive direction. So uh, just tell me about your day today. Yeah, so uh, woke up this morning, uh, a few minutes afterwards, uh, made myself some coffee. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to me, I feel that uh, in the morning, what I want to be able to do is have the, the freshest focus possible. So I usually fast and it's only the coffee. I stretch for 15 to 30 minutes, do some basic strengthening exercises, do some VR work just to kind of get yes. the focus going. Uh, yes. And then I dive right into my day and I get on no. coaching calls and I start working with my students. But unfortunately, this morning, my internet went out and I couldn't work with any of my students. So I had a whole mess of people on Slack saying, Zach, where are you? I paid you all this money to be in your coaching program. Where's the link for me to get refund requests? This is not what I was promised. So it was a no. total disaster of everybody being so, so appreciative of the fact that I've worked so hard and they understand technological issues. No. And a few minutes later, they realized, oh, wow, this is not 
the community that I thought I was going to be a part of because this guy has no idea how to run technology. So what I did was I started researching frantically how is it that I can get another job editing a TV series because clearly I'm a giant failure as a coach and a mentor. But then it then it dawned on me that's stupid. I don't want to fail, especially because at one p.m. I've got a call with Eric Stolhansky. If I show up to that call as a failure, well, then I'm not only a failure but I'm a hypocrite because I decided to quit on something that was hard. Talking to a guy who says that everybody has a wooden leg. So today, this morning, Zoom happened to be not my wooden leg, but I realized that after I was going to be done with this call with Eric Stolhansky, yeah, that I was going to be exhausted because no. the guy put me through the ringer no but i summoned the courage and the energy to realize yeah. that i can put myself on the hot seat and i can nail it and not only by doing that i can yeah. inspire people listening to also pursue their goals even if they're really really hard and really really scary yes nice nice all right there you go perfect Get so that's that's it. fun I can tell that's that fun, you've right? done some improv before. This, I would guess this must have something to do with the improv comedy world. Most of my background is in sketch, but I love the idea of it. Having worked with Game On, it, it's all getting up and improvising with people working uh, who have never have experience and just so much fun to try to encourage people that yes and moving forward, the positiveness of it. You might hear a no, but you're going to take it forward in a different direction anyway. Like you were great because you didn't pause on any of it, right? As soon as I gave you a no, there wasn't like uh, the idea of going backwards or stopping or pausing. It was like instantly just taking it forward. You had a smile on your face. I love it about it was like when I gave you a no, it didn't like shut you down. You didn't like frown. It wasn't like, oh, okay. It was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, uh, and then, right. It was instantaneously just moving forward in a different direction. You had, it was grace. There was grace in it. And uh, it seemed like you were happy to try something different, which I like. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that is because I think that through years and years of conditioning, of just being in a place where I'm like, not only trying to avoid obstacles, I actively put obstacles in my life. I pay to have obstacles in front of me and work with some of the world's foremost experts that make my life as difficult as possible. Even though I've never done this game before, I just think I've rewired my brain to be like, all right, fine, bring it on. What else you got? Let's figure it out. As opposed to immediately shutting down. Um, It's funny because it also reminded me of the story. I swear to God, I haven't thought about this since high school. But we had an activity that we did in forensics. I was in forensics doing like, you know, skits and public speaking. And it's like a it's like basically acting competition for nerds. So if you don't want to be in sports and I mean, in northern Wisconsin, as you know, probably the same in Minnesota, it's all about high school sports. Um, But I wasn't really into the sports and I was into acting and whatnot. And there was an exercise where you basically had to get up in front of the entire class starting with absolutely nothing and you had to tell a story and see how long you could tell the story and entertain people before it just started to become a mess. Like you could use any details you want, but whatever it was, it had to constantly be engaging. And when, as soon as you started to fill it with fluff or like, oh, this is dumb or I'm not interested anymore, they'd say, stop. Interesting. So I would just go for minutes and minutes and minutes making up the craziest shit. And for some reason, I don't know why, but my brain is just wired to, you know, make up all the BS. But I think the combination of that and, again, just really actively putting obstacles in front of me, when you were doing it, it wasn't a matter of, oh, man, that was stupid. And, oh, how can I change the story? It's just like, bring it. Right. I just I love I love that challenge. And that's why I believe a game like this is so beneficial for creatives, because when you're stuck on an idea, there's always another idea out there. You just have to be willing to find it and have a bunch of really crappy ideas first. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, in the editing world, do you get that where, like, I don't know if you get studio notes, but someone's like, no, no. I mean, in a sense, it's probably not that hard, but, like, you know, we're not going to do that. We'll change that. 
I'm not, I'm not, I'm not seeing where that's going. Let's try something else. And like, you might be like, ah, you know, stuck, but then like, okay, I'll try it. And you find out that actually that second or third or fourth, fifth cut actually does get something creative and interesting. Yeah. So I'm as somebody who works in Hollywood, you're probably no stranger to studio and network notes. So you definitely know what those <laughs> yeah. look like. Editors, oh, no yeah. stranger as well. Um, but what I often find, and this is, uh, it's very important for me to collaborate with the right people that are on the same page is that I want to work with people where they're not giving me the solutions. They're giving me the problems and I get to come up with the solutions. So if somebody says this season, the scene isn't working, you need to make it 37 seconds shorter and you need to make this wide shot a close up and you need to take four frames off of here. I'm like, don't tell a brain surgeon how to do brain surgery. Mm. Just tell me that you're having trouble thinking and let me figure out the problem. It would be like me going to a composer and saying you should do four bars of A and then you should go to 12 bars of C flat and at this point you should bring in the strings they're like no let me compose the music just tell me what you want to feel you know what i want to feel happy in this scene all right now i can do my job so as an editor it's my job to interpret what is the result that you want and how are we not reaching that result so if they say like i just an example would be on cobra kai this happens all the time and they're perfect with this they don't tell me how to fix things they tell me the problems they will say that this scene doesn't have enough energy. In my mind, this thing is just an 11 as far as energy. Right now, it's feeling like a seven. That's the only note I get. It's not take these four shots out, make it 17 seconds shorter and use this piece of music instead. It's give it more energy. And it's my job to interpret what that means, knowing their tastes and figure it out, which to me makes my job a lot more interesting. Because as an editor, when you work with people that give you solutions, you're just an extension of a keyboard. It's my job to execute your vision, but I don't get to be a part of it and I don't get to collaborate versus, ooh, I see your problem. I think I've got an idea. Because ultimately, and this is getting very existential and something I talk about uh, with my students as well, is that as you climb higher in the ranks, and I'm sure you can attest to this, it's not like all of a sudden now that you're making movies as opposed to desperately trying to get one made, you don't have less problems in your world you have different problems in your world, and I want my world to be one where it's full of problems that I have fun solving. So if somebody says, these are all the challenges, I'm like, oh my God, that would be awesome to solve that problem, I'm having fun, versus do it this way, yeah, I don't even agree with that and that's dumb, but I'll do it anyways. Like that to me is the difference between a show I will work on and what I won't. It's just, am I gonna enjoy solving these people's problems? Awesome. So that's a perfect example of the, all the no's you get in life every day, right? The notes are red lights. You get a red light, but how, can you t- think of it and frame it in a positive way? And we can apply that in life, right? Like when you get those red lights, can we think, okay, yeah, we'll move forward and, and, and come up with something fun. And that's what you're doing in the exercise and doing a great job with. Yeah. And uh, the the other thing that I'll, I have become uh, very ninja-like at doing, to, to use that phrase, yeah. is that oftentimes, and this is always my goal, when somebody has a note or a thought or something isn't working, I feel that somebody that's really good at their job is going to deliver what that person expects. What I do is I deliver something that's far beyond their expectations. So if they say, this thing doesn't really have enough energy, we want it at an 11, it's at an eight, I'm gonna deliver them a 14. Nice. So my goal is I'm going to give them something that's so far closer to what they want that the note I always want is, whoa, dude, like rain it back a little. So anybody that will watch a finale in Cobra Kai and they're like, my God, this is balls to the wall. It's because my goal is that all of my notes should be this is too much. You need to scale back and slow down. But I never, ever get that note. 
But that's the goal is to push it so far beyond the boundaries that the note is, all right, you need to back off. This is too crazy even for us. But I've yet to yeah. get that note. I love it. That's what you're talking about. Setting the goals high, right? At the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Circle. One yeah. of my favorite quotes, don't know if you've heard it or not, but it's actually a James Cameron quote. So it's uh, apropos to our industry, which is that if you set a, a goal so ridiculously high and you fail, your failure is going to still be above everybody else's success. Absolutely. If that guy doesn't live that quote to a T, I don't know who does. Absolutely, yeah. Because that guy fails spectacularly, but his failures are so far above where anybody else would consider a success. Yeah, it's so. amazing. I, I was making, I was shooting a film with Bill Paxton, and Bill was telling me a early story that he was a painter, and Cameron was an art director, and they're hanging out one day, painting sets and building. And he and Cameron said, I got this uh, script, Bill. I think you'd be good in it's, uh It's about cyborgs. And the, it comes back from the future. And, you know, maybe you could be one of these guys at the beginning. And Bill's like, movie about cyborgs. You know, he's explained it to him. But Cameron had this vision that one day he was going to make this movie about cyborgs and cut to change Cameron, setting his goals high. Yeah, no kidding, right? Uh, cool. Well, I want to be very, very respectful of your time, and I realize that we're uh, we're coming to the end, and uh, actually to one of the the new challenges and obstacles in your life, uh, which is uh, you talked to me that uh, well, what is the challenge that's coming up in about three minutes that precludes us from recording any further? <laughs> yes, uh, kids coming home from school for sure, but not just kids coming home from school. There, there there's a little bit deeper uh, insight into these kids that are coming home from school that if you don't want to share, that's fine. But I just think it's an interesting capper to everything we're talking about where you're making the harder choice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I foster children because I think it's uh, wonderful to have create a safe home for children that uh, need food, good nourishment, uh, try to give positive influence and uh, a safe environment so they can strive and do interesting and great, creative, fun things with their lives like you do and everybody out there that's listening. Everybody deserves a chance. And those are the kind of people I want to surround myself with people <laughs> making choices like that. So even though it might be digital at the moment, uh, it was a pleasure meeting you at the, the events that we met each other at and hopefully yeah, uh, that too, will buddy. happen again. So I've, I've got Definitely. an in to Eric Stolhansky, but if anybody else listening today is inspired by you, they want to learn more about you beyond watching Super Troopers, about you specifically, what's the best way for them to connect and learn more? Yeah, well, I mean, I try to stay active on social media. Sometimes that's hard. I don't take, um, I don't put a ton of focus on social media. I try to stay off screen as much as possible, but I do have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, where I try to give updates. And then I have ericstohansky.net that uh, gives updates on if I have speaking uh, a tour or something like that, or a new movie or something like that. But mostly social media probably keeps the most current up to date. So uh, Instagram, I'm probably on the most. If anybody wants to kind of interact more, it's probably on Instagram, on social media, Eric Stohansky. It's hard to spell, so Google Google how to spell that. <laughs> <Stolhansky>, <laughs> Pretty Swedish, easy to find. Start, challenge. Yeah. yeah. Start with Super Troopers, and uh, you'll find uh, find the spelling very quickly. Uh, but go. Eric, uh, really appreciative that you and I connected, and you're you're a part of my circle, and that you were willing to take the time today to, to share your insights and your story with everybody here. Hey, I'm proud to be in your circle. Thanks, Zach. I really appreciate uh, appreciate your friendship, and uh, great talking today. All right. Take care. All right, buddy. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this interview with actor, writer, and producer Eric Stolhansky. If you'd like to access the original show notes, simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash episode 190. Next week in the fourth of this five-part series, I'm going to share another one of my favorite inspirational interviews with Umberto Germilan 
who's going to teach us a thing or two about gratitude in the face of adversity. Until then, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.